This is the second episode of The Gerrymandering Project, sponsored by Blue Bottle Coffee. The democratic process can be complex and even confusing, but you don't want to miss a thing. So it's important to pay attention and stay alert. What better way than with the most delicious coffee around? Blue Bottle Coffee. I'm talking about coffee that's so delicious, so flavorful, you'll realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your whole life. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com politics for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. That's bluebottlecoffee.com politics. This is called North Point, and that's where, when you were in high school, you came down here to neck. What's necking? Making out. The drive around Sheboygan, Wisconsin, is like a tour through Mary Lynn Donahue's life. And I'll show you the house I grew up in, which is right here. My folks moved here. My dad was a pharmacist. My mom was a nurse. She grew up there, raised kids there, and has spent decades working in local politics. I'm pretty liberal. (laughs) You know, I... I chair Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin. I'm a tired old feminist. Recently, she's helped put Sheboygan at the center of one of the country's most fraught political issues, gerrymandering. Actually, I get a little queasy about it sometimes because I think it's that important. She's one of a dozen Democrats suing Wisconsin's elections officials over the way Republicans drew the state's legislative maps. The claim is that Republicans engaged in a partisan gerrymander, which means they purposefully drew district lines to minimize the number of districts Democrats could win. Splitting the city in half is, it's clever. Um, I mean, they totally diluted our strength. It's just like, you know, somebody has put a gag in your mouth. You will never have the opportunity to really make your voice heard again. I'm Galen Druk. I met Mary Lynn this past summer, and we walked the line where her Democratic-leaning district had been divided and joined with two Republican-leaning districts. Okay, so this is the dividing line. We're standing on Superior Avenue, a residential stretch of Sheboygan that looks like it could be in any other small American city. Brick and wooden houses alternate along the tree-lined street. It's not like a split was made here because there's different demographics. I mean, this is just like slicing the same loaf of bread. It's the same on both sides, but you've just split it in half. The city of Sheboygan used to mostly be in the 26th district. But in 2011, part of the city was moved into the 27th. The split that the Republicans made is not exactly equal. So they didn't cut the city exactly in half. But they very carefully and very calculatedly moved enough people into the 27th and in the 26th to dilute Democratic voting power. Mary Lynn's district, when it encompassed the city of Sheboygan, voted for Obama in 2008 by a 20-point margin. In 2012, the newly drawn district voted for Romney by eight points. That's a 28-point shift in a state that overall only shifted slightly toward Republicans. Meanwhile, the district that took on the other part of the city was Republican and stayed that way in 2012. One Democratic-leaning district disappeared into two Republican-leaning ones. It was pretty clear what was going on, but I don't think it really sank in until the 2012 election. And then it was like, oh my God. I said to my husband, well, that's it. I'm never giving any money ever again to anybody running in the 26th or 27th. I might as well open the window and throw the money out. So Mary Lynn and Democrats around the state turned to the courts. And over the past few years, their case has grown much larger than Sheboygan 
or even Wisconsin. In a move that could have a huge bearing on the future of American politics, the Supreme Court on Monday agreeing to take up an explosive case on whether the tactic of carving up electoral districts to favor one party over another, known as gerrymandering, violates the Constitution. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in October, with a decision coming during the first half of 2018. It's a case that has the potential to change a fundamental part of how our democracy works. Welcome to the second episode of The Gerrymandering Project, a six-part series looking at how we draw districts in America. In each episode, we check out a different attempt to change the system and consider the challenges and trade-offs involved. In this installment, we look at a Supreme Court case, Whitford v. Gill, aimed at getting rid of partisan bias, which means lawmakers drawing lines to benefit one party over the other. It's a high-stakes case that's likely to come down to a single swing vote on the court. I'm Nina Totenberg. I'm the legal affairs correspondent for NPR, and I've been covering the Supreme Court for a long time, including in 2004, when four members of the Supreme Court were willing to consider partisan gerrymandering to be a violation of the Constitution if it was too extreme. The second case I have to announce uh, is Veith versus Jubileer. And this Wisconsin case is speaking directly to that 2004 ruling. It's trying to win over a fifth justice. At the time, five members did not agree. However, the fifth member wrote separately. And that fifth member was Justice Anthony Kennedy. And he made very clear that he was troubled by extreme partisan gerrymandering. But he didn't know how to define that. How much partisan gerrymandering is too much? He was afraid that if there wasn't a precise standard, the court would become too involved in the redistricting process. He says... It is unfortunate that our legislatures have reached the point of declaring that when it comes to apportionment, we are in the business of rigging elections. Still, the court's own responsibilities require that we refrain from intervention in this instance. But he did give future attorneys hints as to what might convince him. If workable standards do emerge to measure these burdens, however, courts should be prepared to order relief. So that's the way he ends his concurring opinion. Basically, it was a shot across the bow saying, bring me a standard that is manageable. And that's the million-dollar question. What is a practical standard for too much partisan gerrymandering? Proponents of reform have been on the hunt for the answer ever since. And in the Wisconsin case, the plaintiffs think, or at least they hope, they found it. We'll get to the story behind the plaintiff's case in a minute. But first, it's important to understand why there wasn't a consensus on the Supreme Court about whether partisan gerrymandering is constitutional. How to draw maps is a decision that has been left in our constitutional system to legislatures. It will be a very big step if the Supreme Court decides that courts are going to dictate how this is done. That's Wisconsin Attorney General Brad Schimmel. He's representing the state in the Whitford case. The chair of the Sheboygan GOP, Dennis Gasper, put it more bluntly. Gerrymandering is established law. This has been going back to the 1800s. Gasper acknowledges that the lines in Sheboygan were drawn to help Republicans. I don't think it's odd that the Republicans are in the legislature. Are they going to set this thing up so that Democrats can win Sheboygan? I, I wouldn't. 
Sometimes it works for the Democrats, sometimes it works for the Republicans. Um, in Illinois, it's gerrymandered totally in favor of the Democrats. A hundred miles south of Sheboygan in Illinois, Democrats controlled all parts of state government in 2011 and drew the maps as they wished. Republicans there also took their case to court. I would, I would disagree with the Republicans in Illinois. I, I, if they wanted gerrymandered, they're going to have to win the state. The Illinois case was dismissed, and Gasper says if people want to reform the way the maps are drawn, they've got to do it through the legislature. You know, when the Democrats control the state legislature again, and they probably will someday, they'll have an opportunity to do that. But they also have controlled the state, and not too long ago. What did they do? Nothing. Why are they complaining? They had their opportunity. They're not interested in established law. And that's also generally the position of conservative justices. In legal speak, partisan gerrymandering isn't justiciable, meaning redistricting isn't up to the courts or the branch of government that interprets the laws. Instead, they think the rules should be up to the legislature, the branch of government that makes the laws. But liberal justices and attorneys tend to disagree. Partisan gerrymandering, it enables an entrenched minority to govern without the ability of the majority to express their will or remedy the situation. And that's why it's critical that a court intervene, that the courts have to fix this, because the political process cannot fix it. That's Peter Earle. He's a lawyer who worked on the Wisconsin case that's in front of the Supreme Court. I am a civil rights lawyer. I focus mostly on cases that I would describe as where you encounter extreme abuse of authority. His argument is, if the redistricting process violates the principles of the Constitution, then the court should say so. And Earl sees two violations going on in the Wisconsin case. If you associate with the Democratic Party, as opposed to the Republican Party, that is conduct that rece should receive First Amendment protection. The courts have said that the First Amendment protects Americans' right to associate with whatever groups they choose. He also says Wisconsin's redistricting violated the 14th Amendment, equal protection. The legislature ought not be able to draft laws that treat Democrats and Republicans differently. So Kennedy may be disturbed by partisan gerrymandering, but he's also a conservative justice. Swaying him will be no small feat. To get a sense of the case the plaintiffs are making, we have to go back to 2010, the last time the census was conducted. In Wisconsin, like in most states, the state legislature draws new district maps after the census comes out every 10 years. Here's Patrick Marley, a state politics reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The state Senate, which was controlled by Democrats at the time, was thinking about redistricting, and they, the Democrats agreed to hire lawyers for both the Republican caucus and the Democratic caucus to begin work on maps. In the beginning, both sides were preparing to draw maps. But then the 2010 midterms happened, and Democrats were trounced nationwide. Republicans have won control of key state offices as you decide 2010, and it starts at the governor's office in Madison. It's the first time since Tommy Thompson in 1998 that a Republican has been elected governor. Scott Walker won the governor's mansion, while Republicans also flipped the state assembly and Senate. State government went from being fully controlled by Democrats to being fully controlled by Republicans. Once Republicans took over the legislature, they ended the process where both Senate Republicans and Senate Democrats were able to have lawyers, and instead 
just had one set of lawyers that answered only to the Republicans. Since the 1980s, Wisconsin's maps had ended up being drawn by the courts because government had been divided between Republicans and Democrats, and they hit an impasse. This marked the first time since the 1980s that one party controlled both the legislature and the governor's mansion in a redistricting year. That also meant there was no need for compromise. These lawyers and the legislative staff working on it were in a secure room in a law firm off the grounds of the Capitol. There was very limited access to who could see the maps. Democrats, the press, the public, and even Republicans had little idea what was going on inside the law office where the maps were being drawn. I, like the rest of the caucus, you know, didn't think about it too much. Former Republican Senate Majority Leader Dale Schultz. I served in the Wisconsin legislature for 32 years. I used to be considered uh, one of the most conservative members of the Wisconsin legislature. You know, I think most people now would consider me a moderate. He retired from the legislature in 2015 and has since spoken out against gerrymandering. Some people got a little piggy. And as the old man used to tell me on this farm, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And, you know, at some point they get so piggy they become hogs and the Supreme Court has to step in. And I think that's kind of what's happened here. Senate Majority Leader at the time, and still today, Scott Fitzgerald, declined to be interviewed. When they had finished their work, they uh, called each legislator in one by one to show them their district and sort of get a tacit approval. Are you okay with this? I went over there and was shown my district and was mostly relieved that they didn't change much. Only Republican lawmakers got to see their districts. In fact, when they got to a point that uh, they were having rank-and-file legislators look at the maps, they were required to sign non-disclosure agreements, that they wouldn't talk about these maps in any way. Now, you didn't get to see the whole state. You just got to see your district. It was a process that even Republicans who had been around said they'd never seen anything like it before. It was more closed than it had ever been in the past. There was less interest in paying attention to uh, local governments and uh, good government groups that are out there. When Republicans had finished showing the maps to lawmakers, they called an extraordinary mid-July session to vote on them. Here's Democratic Assembly Minority Leader Peter Barca. They brought this forward uh, suddenly, and I think it was within two or three weeks that they made it through the entire process, which is virtually unheard of. A verbal assault by Senate Democrats didn't stop Republicans from passing a new plan to redraw Wisconsin's political boundaries. One after another, Senate Democrats tore into Republicans today for a redistricting plan they say was rushed, unfair to voters, and politically motivated. Everybody in the state recognizes this for what this exactly is. This is a huge power grab. Nine days after they were introduced, the maps had passed both chambers of the legislature on strict party-line votes. Well, certainly we we could see that it was designed to cement a Republican majority. That was absolutely obvious. And that's when Peter Earle entered the scene. Oh, it stunk to high heaven. It really did. It, the, 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 the fact that there was absolutely no prior information available, uh, that, the, that the hearing was announced on very short notice, that the information that was provided to the public was extremely skeletal. At first, Earle was interested in the maps because he thought they were racially gerrymandered. So he brought a suit that claimed that the Latino vote around Milwaukee had been diluted. We'll look at racial gerrymandering in a later episode in this series. But for now, we're concerned with what Earl uncovered in the process. And what he uncovered led him to a second case. 
And that's the case that's before the Supreme Court this fall. I would not say that the case that's now headed to the U.S. Supreme Court could have happened if there hadn't been the earlier case on the Voting Rights Act. When the Republicans who drew the maps were deposed in the Latino voting rights case, they told the court they did not make their mapping decisions based on partisan control of the legislature. But Earl was skeptical. He wanted to find out exactly what was going on inside the law office where they were drawing the maps. We began to do depositions and made document requests. But the state would not turn over the mapping documents. Eventually, the court got fed up and ordered the state to turn them over. And I'll quote from that decision. The three-judge panel said, quite frankly, the legislature and the actions of its counsel give every appearance of flailing wildly in a desperate attempt to hide from both the court and the public the true nature of exactly what transpired in the redistricting process. A week later, Earl and his colleague got the documents they were looking for. For the first time, they and the public started to get a picture of what had happened in that law office. They found the secrecy agreements the Republican legislators had signed. And they also found one memo in particular. It appeared to be shared with Republican lawmakers when they were shown their districts. When I pulled out the talking points for Robin memo, I was, I was completely astounded. It, 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 it was as if suddenly the, the, the veil of fog had parted. The memo read, quote, public comments on this map may be different than what you hear in this room. Ignore the public comments, close quote. Remember, quote, the previously signed agreement applies to this meeting. Public comment will lead to depositions and being called to the witness stand, close quote. The dishonesty, the deceitfulness, the secrecy just suddenly became crystal clear to us. It was incredible. We had no idea what we were going to find. At the time the documents were made public, Robin Voss, the lawmaker who communicated the memo, told the press that he was telling fellow lawmakers to ignore the public comments from Democrats. Voss declined to be interviewed. Earl and his partner still didn't have a full picture of how the maps were drawn a detail that would be key to their case. So they continued to dig deeper, and they noticed that email records from some people didn't match the email records from the people they were communicating with. And that raised suspicions, and we began to demand more and more information. And the court finally ordered them to turn over the hard drive so we can forensically look at them. So the attorneys hired a forensic examiner. He was able to determine that hundreds of thousands of documents had been deleted with a wiping software uh, prior to the hard drives being turned over to us. But they were able to uncover the deleted documents, including a number of spreadsheets. And those spreadsheets are what really told the story. We were able to see every iteration of the map as they went from the baseline to the map that they finally adopted. The map drawers used years of partisan voting data to design maps that strongly favored Republicans. We found out that there was a professor by the name of Keith Gaddy from the University of Oklahoma who had been hired by the Republicans to develop a very sophisticated multivariate regression analysis of partisan performance based on, um, on votes in the assembly districts from 2006, 2008, 2010. 10, and they, they actually downloaded this proxy into the software that they were using to draw the maps. So when the map drawers moved the lines on the software, they could see how it affected the partisan lean of the districts in real time. The three Republicans who were responsible for drawing these maps declined to be interviewed on the record. And then they, 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 they kept up in the ante in terms of how many uh, Republican seats they were guaranteed. 
The map they ultimately came up with was designed to elect Republicans to 59 of the 99 assembly seats with just 49% of the vote, a strong majority with a minority of the statewide vote. They had accounted for, in effect, the largest swings between Democratic turnout and Republican turnout during the preceding decade. The plaintiffs are now presenting those spreadsheets to the Supreme Court as evidence that the Republicans set out to disadvantage Democrats. The moment that, I, that we realized this, it was, like a, it was like a eureka moment. And the rage, the anger uh, that I felt, that the, the, the outrage that these people would commit this level of a crime against the democratic process was, was just astounding. Um, at, at that point, we decided we were going to do something about this. Attorney General Brad Schimmel. I don't know what was in their minds. Um, I, I only know what maps they did produce. The plaintiffs still had to build a case and answer Anthony Kennedy's question, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor, Blue Bottle Coffee. Drawing district lines can be very controversial, but there's one line we can draw that's not debatable. That's the line between subpar coffee and Blue Bottle Coffee. Blue Bottle Coffee is so delicious, so flavorful, you'll wonder if drinking any other coffee should be illegal. Simply put, Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee on the planet by working directly with growers all over the world. And talk about taking freshness seriously? Check this out. You place your order online, and boom, within 48 hours, your beans are roasted and shipped right to your home. So your beans are at your door at peak freshness, no sitting on a store shelf for weeks. And you never have to worry about flavor, because Blue Bottle has something for everyone's taste buds, from the lighter, fruit-forward profiles to the deep, chocolatey espressos. Blue Bottle is undoubtedly the freshest, most delicious coffee around. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com politics for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. And while you're there, be sure to check out their digital holiday store, because Blue Bottle Coffee makes a great gift. Head to bluebottlecoffee.com politics. Again, bluebottlecoffee.com politics. And now, back to Wisconsin. Even if the plaintiffs are right that Republicans purposefully tried to handicap Democrats, they still haven't answered Kennedy's question. What is the standard for measuring partisan gerrymandering? To find an answer, Earl began meeting with other attorneys and Democratic activists and studying Anthony Kennedy. And eventually, they found their way to Nick Stephanopoulos and Eric McGee. I'm Nick Stephanopoulos. I'm a law professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He and McGee, a political scientist, were offering a new metric called the efficiency gap as a way to measure partisan gerrymandering. It works like this. It's built on the insight that all gerrymandering anywhere and everywhere takes place either by cracking or by packing. Okay, to break this down, I'm going to play bartender. Let's drink some vodka tonics. So cracking refers to dispersing the other side's supporters among a whole bunch of districts where their preferred candidates consistently lose by relatively narrow margins. Imagine I have a handle of vodka, which should make about 40 mixed drinks. So I take 35 glasses, fill them up with tonic water, put a couple drops of vodka in each glass. And I mix it up, 
there you go. How's it taste? It tastes like tonic water. Nobody's even going to get tipsy off of those. What we've done is we've cracked the vodka across most of the drinks, and the vodka hasn't done much in any of them. Packing is sort of the opposite of that. It refers to over-concentrating the other side's voters in a small number of districts where their preferred candidates win by overwhelming margins. Now I take the remaining five glasses and dump basically the whole handle into those five glasses with just a touch of tonic. And then I shake those up. Okay, here you go. What happens? We've packed those five drinks with almost 10 shots of vodka in each. And those five people are going to be wasted while everyone else at the party is just stone cold sober. Sounds like a crappy party to me. Both cracking and packing produce what political scientists call wasted votes. These are just votes that don't contribute to the election of a candidate. And so in the case of cracking, all of the votes that are cast for the losing candidate are wasted. In other words, all of those useless drops of vodka. In the case of packing, all of the votes that are cast for the winning candidate above the 50% threshold that you need for victory uh, those are wasted. All the vodka I poured into those five glasses beyond what it takes to get you buzzed. And so to calculate the efficiency gap, you subtract one party's wasted votes from the other party's wasted votes, and then divide by all the votes cast in the election. And so it captures in a single number the extent to which one party is more cracked and more packed than the other party. Cocktail analogies aside, Nick was potentially offering a way to measure partisan gerrymandering. But the other thing that stuck out to Peter and his crew is the data that Stephanopoulos had on Wisconsin. That paper showed Wisconsin as having one of the most egregious and most gerrymandered district maps in the country. In the time that Earl was obtaining all the documents, Wisconsin had had an election, a test for the new maps. In 2012, Republicans won 61% of the assembly seats, with only 47% of the two-party vote. The efficiency gap was 13%. A later study would show that the size of Wisconsin's efficiency gap between 2012 and 2014 was unprecedented during the 40 years before. If you think the U.S. House of Representatives is gerrymandered, you ain't seen nothing yet until you look at Wisconsin State Assembly districts. 538's Harry Enton. So today in the House, Republicans are winning about 55% of the seats with about 51% of the vote, or about 20 more seats than you might expect. But if you were to skew the House map, as much as Wisconsin's Assembly map is skewed today, that would perhaps triple. Republicans would probably be winning upwards of, say, 60 more seats than you'd expect otherwise. The folks in Wisconsin contacted me in the summer of 2014. And uh, everyone there agreed to give the efficiency gap and the idea in the article a shot. Armed with the efficiency gap, the plaintiffs think they have met Kennedy's challenge from 2004, a workable standard for measuring excessive partisan gerrymandering. Their standard has three parts. The first part is whether the map was enacted with discriminatory intent. Was the motive to benefit one party over the other? The second prong, this is the prong that involves the efficiency gap, is whether a map has actually produced a large and a durable discriminatory effect. Are one party's votes being wasted 
more than the others. And then the third prong is whether there's any legitimate justification for a plan's discriminatory effect. Is there any reason other than partisan gerrymandering that one party keeps wasting its votes? And so they went to federal court and they won. The court ordered that the legislature redraw the maps ahead of the 2018 election. Federal court rules today that Wisconsin state voting districts drawn up by Republicans are unconstitutional. A three-judge panel threw out the state's district maps today, saying they violate the voting rights of Democrats in the state. But, of course, that's not the end of the story. The U.S. Supreme Court will now decide whether the maps that determine who you vote for are constitutional. Wisconsin Attorney General Brad Schimmel appealed the lower court decision. When Justice Kennedy said there's a possibility that someday one of these could be justiciable, he made clear that it's got to be a, a neutral, limited, and precise standard. And there are a number of reasons that the state says the plaintiff's standard is not neutral, limited, and precise. What the plaintiffs are claiming is essentially that they have a constitutional right to proportional representation of political parties, and that right doesn't exist. We have winner-take-all elections in America. If Democrats win 51% of the vote in every district in Wisconsin, they get 100% of the seats. That's just the way it works. The challenge is to the entire state's map system. And that's never been permitted before where you could, you could get it struck down based on looking at the whole state rather than looking district by district. In past racial gerrymandering cases, only single districts have been struck down. In this case, the plaintiffs are trying to get the whole state map struck down. All of this efficiency gap discussion, it ignores that you can't just box voters into an expectation that they're always going to vote the same way. There are many factors that influence why people vote a particular way in an election. Partisanship is becoming more predictable, but he's right. Quality of candidates and national environment definitely play a role. You can't just have a vague we're dissatisfied with the end result standard. The two sides go back and forth over why the plaintiff standard is or is not sufficient. And one of the most contentious points is actually a big question in political science as well. Does self-sorting, which refers to Democrats and Republicans choosing to live in distinct parts of the state, naturally advantage Republicans in Wisconsin? That is one of the arguments that you can't get around that people pack themselves into particular areas. We have counties where it approaches 70% either Democratic or Republican voters, depending on which county you're in. And that's just where people choose to live. In Wisconsin, Democrats tend to cluster in Milwaukee and Madison, with Republican voters in more suburban and rural areas. You can't undo that without creating maps that are very, very strange looking. And when you do that, you'd also run the risk of splitting up minorities. Again, Harry Enton. I mean, there are a number of legitimate criticisms of the efficiency gap, but I think that's why in order to prove a gerrymander, I think most people agree that you need more than just the efficiency gap. The plaintiffs in the case say that maps should only be illegal if the bias in the maps is deliberate and not, for example, the result of natural political geography. The best way to analyze that argument is to say, what efficiency gaps would we observe if we drew hundreds of district maps that were all at least as good as the actual map 
on every dimension. Meaning that they're compact and they don't split up communities, for example. And a researcher did that. Joey Chen from the University of Michigan used software to randomly draw 200 Wisconsin assembly maps. And what he finds is that in Wisconsin, the vast majority of randomly drawn maps have efficiency gaps extremely close to zero. About a quarter of them, though, did have a gap that favored Republicans, meaning that maps drawn by a nonpartisan computer could still benefit Republicans in Wisconsin. There is a case to be made that the political geography of Wisconsin does benefit Republicans, but not nearly as much as they've worked to benefit themselves. None of those randomly drawn maps had a gap anywhere close to the maps Republicans drew in 2011. All the evidence considered, it's unlikely that Republicans' advantage in Wisconsin is happenstance. But this research still poses a challenge for the plaintiffs on their quest to find a precise standard. If political geography and other factors can produce a partisan advantage sometimes, then where should the court draw the line? When Nick Stephanopoulos and Eric McGee originally wrote their paper, they recommended a cutoff of an 8% efficiency gap. In the Wisconsin case, they aren't actually suggesting a cutoff to the court. So I think this is a hard question that courts would be better positioned to answer after seeing a significant number of these lawsuits rather than in the very first lawsuit of this kind. Over time, a line will emerge that makes it clear to people what is permissible and what is not permissible. This has happened in almost every major area of civil rights adjudication in our, in our history. If the court were to go with the standard that Stephanopoulos and McGee originally recommended, almost a third of states would have either their congressional or state legislative maps struck down. On one hand, that gives you a sense of how widespread extreme partisan gerrymandering really is. But on the other, it raises the stakes for those who don't think the court should be meddling in state politics in the first place. One third of the maps in America fail. That can't be a positive end result. And that's not just Republican states. There are states where the assertion is that Democratic leadership has drawn maps that were too political. I mean, it really comes down to one person, that being Anthony Kennedy, and we'll see what he has to say. And it's going to be a difficult decision. He's a pretty conservative judge. Conservative in the sense of judicially restrained about political things. And this, is, this would be a big step to go into the question of partisan redistricting and say that the court should make some sort of a judgment as to when it's too much. We've never had that. I would not trust anybody who says they can tell you with confidence how this case is going to be decided. And if the plaintiff's argument doesn't sway him this time, it could be a while before the court takes up the issue again. Here's Mary Lynn. If this case doesn't win, I don't know, I don't think there will ever be a judicial decision about partisan gerrymandering. I think this is our big chance. I think if this doesn't work, I'll probably be dead before anything changes. The decision facing Anthony Kennedy shows just how complex reforming the redistricting system can be. Even if the court rules in favor of Wisconsin's Democrats, it could still be many years and court cases before the court ultimately decides what is fair. And even then, plenty of questions about redistricting are left to be answered. Should districts be drawn to enhance competitiveness? How competitive is the right amount of competition? 
what's the best way to represent minorities? How big of a priority is keeping cities, counties, and communities of interest together? What even is a community of interest? And for the particularly ambitious reformers, is there a way to take politics out of redistricting altogether? Those are some of the questions we'll focus on throughout the rest of the series. Next week, we head to North Carolina to look at racial gerrymandering and consider how best to represent African-Americans in a state with a history of racially polarized voting. I attend the largest public HBCU in the nation and that essentially the students, their votes are being diluted. To me, that's something that I can't stop thinking about. I've heard people call and say things like, you've done a wonderful job on that issue. However, I just can't vote for his kind. When the Obama Justice Department says your maps are good and a federal judge says no, what in the hell is a state supposed to do? Sometimes you have to draw things that look ugly to be inclusive. That's next week in the 538 Politics feed. In the meantime, remember to head over to our Facebook group to ask questions and share your experiences. Go to Facebook and search The Gerrymandering Project. This episode was reported and produced by me, Galen Druk, and edited by Chadwick Matlin. Our politics editor is Micah Cohen, and our intern for this episode was Alice Wilder. But really, she was more of an associate producer. Kevin Seaman did the engineering and scoring. A special thank you to Tony Chow, David Wasserman, Jody Abergan, Harry Enton, Sarah Wallace, Josh Cohen, and Kate Bakhtiarova. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com, or of course, you can send a tweet. If you're a fan of the show, leave the Politics Podcast a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store. When you leave a rating, it helps our rankings, which helps others discover the show. Or just tell someone about this series. Of course, you can find our weekly politics podcast in this feed. And we'll be back next Thursday with more of the Gerrymandering Project. Until then, thanks for listening.